New Year's Eve, New York City, 1999. Tipsy partygoers cram into crowded apartments while others gather to watch the ball drop in Times Square. New Year's Eve is always electric, but tonight's celebrations are laced with a different kind of energy. The coming day signals the dawn of a new millennium, and along with it, the possibility of a techno-apocalypse. On New Year's Day 2000, is it possible that we're in for an international disaster because so many of the world's computers will be utterly confused by what date it is? When computers were invented, their internal clocks had just two digits for the year. Decades of software have apparently been built on the assumption that the 21st century was too distant a concept to contemplate. Now, people around the world are terrified that computers will freeze with the switch to 2000, crippling financial systems, knocking out power, disrupting communications, triggering airplane crashes and nuclear meltdowns. A panicking public prepares for the worst. All day, store director Rick Smith watched consumers get Y2K ready. Batteries sell extremely well, the lamp oil, uh, generators, uh, flashlights, those type of items. Anything that a person would probably want to use during a power outage. It's the same. Down in Washington, it's one man's job to make sure they don't need any of those. His name is John Koskinen, and he's President Clinton's Y2K czar. The president called me one night and said, here's an office and an assistant, and don't let the world stop. Koskinen's job is to make sure that government and industry take the necessary precautions to prevent a cataclysm and to prepare for whatever might happen if they fail. Eight to 10% of the population were fairly confident that this was going to be an apocalypse. It's a no-win situation. If disaster strikes, it's his fault. But if the transition goes off without a hitch, the whole thing looks like an overreaction, or even worse, a giant hoax. Midnight comes, and it's business as usual. Bank machines work, the power stays on, airplanes don't rain from the sky. Around the world, the public shrugs, making fun of the fear they felt just a few hours ago. Even today, 20 years later, people still debate whether Koskinen and his colleagues were heroic, or suckers, or just lucky. Author Dan Heath says this is a central paradox of upstream thinking. If you succeed in preventing a problem from happening, you pretty much disappear. But in an extraordinarily timely new book, he makes the case for saying a toast to the invisible averters of disaster. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club, along with the authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant, to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, how to think upstream. If the past few months have taught us anything, it's that ignoring long-simmering problems is a recipe for disaster. We spend our energy responding to crises when we could be looking for the root causes and working on prevention. Of course, that's much easier said than done. Tackling problems on a systemic level is slow and messy work. 
It's also rarely rewarded. We bang pots and pans for our frontline heroes, as of course we should. But author Dan Heath argues that we should also celebrate the people in the background who keep things from going off the rails in the first place. Heath is a senior fellow at the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship at Duke University. He's written four New York Times bestselling books with his brother Chip, a professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. His new book is called Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. We spoke in June, not long after nationwide protests began against police brutality and the United States reached 100,000 deaths related to COVID-19. Dan Heath, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks, Rufus. You know, I think a logical place to start would be to share the story from which I think you get the term upstream. This is a a parable that's often attributed to Irving Zola, who was a sociologist, and and it goes like this. You and a friend are having a picnic beside a river, and you lay out your picnic blanket. You're just preparing to eat when you hear a shout from the direction of the river, and you turn around, and there's a child thrashing around in the water, apparently drowning. And so both of you instinctively dive in, and you rescue the child. You bring them to shore, and Just as you're starting to catch your breath a bit, you hear a second shout, and you look back, it's another child, also apparently drowning, and so back in you go. And no sooner have you gotten that child to shore, you hear two more shouts. Now it's two kids in the river, and so you're back and forth, you're fishing out kids, you're right back in, and you're starting to get exhausted. And and after a while, you see your friend swimming to shore and stepping out and beginning to walk away as though to leave you by yourself, and you say... Hey, where are you going? I can't save all these kids by myself. And your friend says, I'm going upstream to tackle the guy who's throwing all these kids in the river. And (laughs) that, in a nutshell, is what I'm chasing with this book, that in so many parts of our life, in our personal lives, at work, and even in society, we find ourselves in these never-ending cycles of reaction. You know, we're putting out fires, we're responding to emergencies. We're always reacting, 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 but we never make the space. We never have the intentionality needed to get upstream and deal with these problems at the root level. And that's what I'm trying to get at with this book. That story is so indelible, Dan, and I've repeated that story now to a few people. And I also find in that opening parable some of the challenges inherent in the decision to go upstream, because I mean, I, I was a, a lifeguard briefly in, in, as a teenager. And, you know, the onus of saving somebody who's drowning, which I never actually did, but I mean, it's something that you think about. The decision to leave the children thrashing right. to go upstream is such a painful and difficult decision to make, even though one understands rationally that it's the right decision. Is that challenge part of why we're so bad at it? It is. It is. And I think, to be fair, a lot of the areas of life where we're going upstream, the stakes will be lower than, you know, turning your back on a drowning child, which is hard to think of a choice that's more difficult or abhorrent than that. But I think a more ordinary situation would be times at work when we're constantly in firefighting mode. We're always dealing with urgent problems that demand our attention right now. And it simply doesn't appear that there's the space to do anything more grandiose like systemic problem solving. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the real trap. Mm-hmm. In many ways, this is sort of the core tension of the book that if we don't go upstream, we doom ourselves to a life spent downstream solving the same problems or, or rather working around the same problems again and again. But to pull ourselves away from those emergencies is often very, very painful. 
and, and can have cost. Of course, for so many of us, this COVID-19 pandemic is front of mind. And it feels like both a cautionary tale when it comes to the costs of not properly engaging in upstream thinking, and maybe also a, a teachable moment and an experience that will cause us to move more upstream in the future. How do you think about this epidemic and upstream thinking? I'm tempted to zoom out just a little bit. I, I hate to be too academic because the costs of this are so visceral and so fresh when we're talking. But I think it's fair to say that there are aspects of this that reflect huge victories. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about just the mere fact that we had a couple of months notice that this was coming and what a profound public health victory that represents. I mean, 100 years ago, there would have been no advance notice that uh, coronavirus was coming to our shores. There would have been no opportunity to, to begin to train the public on what was needed. Mm -hmm. And that's a function of the surveillance systems, you know, not – surveillance in like an Orwellian sense, but surveillance in the sense of keeping an eye on what diseases are out there and how they're propagating, that public health officials have built very intentionally over a period of decades. And yet on the other side of the ledger, it doesn't seem that we made the best use of that advance notice. It doesn't seem that we did everything we could to reduce the death toll. And beyond that, what really bothers me about this particular pandemic is in the book, I talk about lots of, of emergencies that aren't foreseeable. You know, you think about something like uh, a big hurricane or more far-fetched, an asteroid strike or something like that, mm -hmm. where something mm -hmm. catches us off guard and we've got to deal with it. This was not one of those things. I mean, people have been talking about exactly this scenario for not just years, but decades. And to find that we were so poorly resourced, to find that we're dealing with these completely foreseeable snafus like the lack of PPE and so forth, it's a little depressing from an upstream perspective. And I think maybe the only silver lining here is one of the difficulties of working upstream is it all seems so abstract. You know, w when you're preparing for something that hasn't happened, well, it's not abstract anymore. I mean, we all know people who have had COVID. We may know someone who died as a result of COVID. Mm -hmm. And my hope is a few months down the road when the firefighting stage of the epidemic is over and when the public health experts come back and say, hey, here's the 10-point plan of how we need to get ready for the next epidemic, my hope is that there is a massive public show of support because we've seen what happens when we don't prepare. That's right. And a theme in your book is the importance of who we position as our heroes. I've always been struck by the absurdity of the fact that for, for so many of us, our heroes are people who pretend to be heroes, which is to say actors, <laughs> you know, whose job it is to pretend, <laughs> to pretend to be people who are, for instance, on the front lines, doctors and nurses and so on. And right now, in moments of calamity like this, we are focused on, I think, the much more authentic heroes, all these extraordinary people on the front lines who are sacrificing themselves and endangering themselves for all of our benefit. And I think that you would make the case that we should extend our definition of who the heroes are to those people who are the public health experts who spend years and years and years working on trying to anticipate problems that could be calamitous and do so in total obscurity. And that in moments like this, perhaps we start to see those people. I talked to a public health expert named Julie Pavlin, and she said something that stuck with me. She said, if you do your job in public health, Nobody knows because nothing bad happens. 
And that's what we're dealing with here, the paradox of prevention, that, that the better a job we do at preventing something, the less evidence there is that it ever needed preventing. And this became something that fascinated me and that I didn't see coming when I started this research, is as you said, it really speaks to our definition of a hero. Mm-hmm. And just generically speaking, our, our schema of a hero is is somebody who rushes in in an emergency. It's a first responder. It's a, it's a firefighter. It's a lifeguard. Yep. And these are people who save the day. But what about all those people whose work kept the day from needing to be saved? You know, they work in relative obscurity. Their work may be invisible. They do their work quietly. And yet, wouldn't we all prefer to live in the world where we didn't need to be saved from our burning house or our child didn't need to be fished out of the YMCA swimming pool at the last second? And yet, we pay so little public credit to the people who build these systems. This reminds me of the uh, famous Miracle on the Hudson story. You may remember the flight that left LaGuardia that ended up hitting a a flock of Canadian geese and had to land in the Hudson River. Sully. Sully. Captain Sully would end up being played by Tom Hanks in a movie of the same name. And Stephen Johnson makes this great observation in his book, Future Perfect, that in fact, the only reason it was possible to land that plane in the river was that the federal regulators had required for decades all aircraft engines to go through a chicken test where they would shoot out of a chicken cannon, I mean, out of a cannon rather, chickens into running jet engines and require that the engines needed to be able to survive that impact and continue functioning and not have catastrophic failures. And only because of decades of planning, was it possible to hit that quantity of geese and still have one of the two engines running enough to keep the electrical system running, which kept the fly-by-wire system running, which provided computer-assisted flight assistance to Captain Sully, who was indeed a hero, right? But nobody is saying, let's go celebrate the federal regulators, right, who built the chicken cannon, <laughs> right? I mean, that's a, that's a story that's lost to history to some degree. I, I cannot think of a better example of this dynamic than that. I love that. And I do not envy the job of the person who has to fire the chicken cannon, just to, uh, <laughs> yeah, parenthetically. Yeah. Well, your description of sort of the thanklessness of the task of being a, uh, a public health worker reminds me of the extraordinary story in the book of the Y2K crisis, which, of course, so many of us have forgotten about. You and I, I think, are old enough to remember what an incredibly surreal moment that was, right? We were all sitting there literally waiting at the countdown to see if the world was going to fall apart. (laughs) I'm curious to hear, since you did all the research on this moment, do you think that we really were in severe danger in that moment? And what lessons do you take from that? I I think based on everything I learned from talking to John Koskinen and others, I I think it was a, a crisis averted situation. I think that there were There was a real threat that core systems, which many of which dated back to like 60s era mainframes and had just never been overhauled. They just received accretion of patches, you know, over a 30 or 40 year period. I think there was a real risk that systems would have gone down. I don't know how severe that risk would have been. I don't know if, you know, the financial system tanks or the electrical grid goes down. It's impossible to know. And this is what's so hard about prevention. But... I think that the best available evidence suggests we saw a big problem looming. It got a lot of attention, which caused people's energy to get focused very quickly. 
And I think a lot of smart people, I mean, thousands of smart people spending billions of dollars managed to fix things just in the nick of time. And, you know, the new millennium came and went with, with a kind of yawn. And what's so funny is, as you said, John Koskinen saw this coming. He said, if we do our job well, what's going to happen is people are going to shrug their shoulders and say, well, what a bunch of nothing that was. You know, we got scammed. It was all a bunch of hype. And and he said it was about 48 hours after the turn of the new millennium when he started to hear that kind of talk. And you hear the same thing now about COVID. Our very success in combating this problem becomes evidence that we didn't need to combat it, which is the paradox of this, of course. And I think as a species, we have to get better at kind of modeling causation in our mind and to realize there are times when it's going to be an enormous victory to accomplish nothing. Wouldn't we have preferred to live in a world right now where there were zero COVID deaths rather than 100,000 by virtue of our extraordinary preparation? Of course, we all want to live in that world, a world in which we anticipate problems instead of scramble to react to them, a world in which our foresight keeps an outbreak from morphing into a global pandemic. So why don't we? What makes upstream thinking so darn hard? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming healthcare technology, from artificial intelligence to robotics and beyond, health tech is reinventing what's possible. Every year, Medtronic improves the lives of 74 million people, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. I think one of the best examples of upstream thinking is education. By educating yourself, you're preparing your mind for whatever problems may show up downstream. At the Next Big Idea Club, we're building a community of upstream learners, people who are focused on big ideas and who enjoy connecting with like-minded readers and writers. Join us now for three months free and get the best in new life-changing nonfiction books, as well as video and audio from the authors themselves that let you absorb their key ideas in just minutes. Check it out at nextbigideaclub.com. That's nextbigideaclub.com. It's 2002, and Anita Tucker is chasing after a nurse named Abby. Tucker's a business student finishing up her doctoral dissertation at Harvard. And part of her research is shadowing 22 nurses in eight different hospitals to see how they solve problems. Right now, Abby's trying to check out a mother and her newborn baby. Check out, as in send them home. And... Part of the checkout procedure is to remove the security anklet from the infant. But in this case, there was no anklet. They'd fallen off somewhere. So they do this frantic search. And of course, this is important because it keeps babies from being abducted. They find the anklet in the baby's bassinet. So problem solved. But three hours later, it's time for another mother and her baby to check out. And that baby's anklet has gone missing too. People on the ward look high and low, but no one can find it. So Abby comes up with a workaround, a different security protocol, and sends them on their way. She's a nurse, after all, and nurses do what needs to be done, which Dan Heath says is kind of heroic. But then if you flip it around and you look at it from the system's point of view, what you realize is something that's actually sort of horrifying. 
which is that what I'm describing here is a system that never learns, that never improves. Because what these nurses had gotten so good at doing is working around problems to continue with their day, right? You run out of towels, you run to the neighboring unit and you take some of their towels. And that's the quickest way to get you on with your day. But notice the trap is that when you don't deal with that as a problem to be solved permanently, when you don't deal with the system that beget that problem, you doom yourself to encountering the very same problem the next week. So this is what shocked Anita Tucker is that she could not find a single instance where a nurse had done systemic level problem solving, like to ask, hmm, I wonder why all these anklets are falling off and what can we do to eliminate this problem in the future? Of course, the point of Dan's story is not to demonize nurses, who, especially in this moment, we recognize as people who do vital and courageous work. The point is to ask what kinds of systems thinking would help make their job easier. And whose job is it to do that upstream work? So with downstream problem solving, there's almost always a clear owner. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, toddler soils themselves at daycare. Like somebody owns changing that. It's pretty easy to figure out who it is or your house catches on fire. The fire department owns that. It's easy to point your finger and say, this is the owner of the problem. But then if you flip it around and you start looking at prevention, you ask a question like, whose job is it to keep your house from catching on fire? It's actually pretty complex. I mean, the homeowner is certainly first in line, but they're not alone, right? It, it also has a lot to do with how your home was built and what materials were used and who your neighbors are and what the city building codes are and whether you have uh, intervention from the fire department on a, on a preventive basis and on and on and on. And, and in situations like that where ownership is diffuse mm -hmm. and where lots of people kind of have claims on the problem, but there's no one clear owner, a lot of time what happens is nothing. And so that's one of the things that often needs to change with upstream interventions is somebody somewhere has to step up and say, you know what, we didn't create this problem, but by God, we're going to be the ones to fix it. And we have a lot of opportunities in this country to apply more upstream thinking, right? I mean, unfortunately, the news is not all good. Like if we look at the American healthcare system, you say, we're famously good at addressing downstream problems, replacing joints, treating cancer, heart disease. Saudi princes fly in for treatments in the U.S. But when it comes to the question, where do you want to live to raise a healthy child? Tragically, the United States is low on the list of first world countries. Yeah, and this was something that surprised me. I mean, I'm a big consumer of the news and I've read all the debates about Obamacare over the years. And and, and something that was very familiar to me is this idea that, that the U.S. spends the most in the world on healthcare, which is certainly true, don't get me wrong. But, but, but it's actually more complex than that. Is if you think of uh, two big buckets of spending, you know, an upstream bucket of healthcare spending that's about keeping you healthy, and so that might be things like having clean air, uh, having easy access to parks, having good food outlets mm -hmm. like you can get fresh produce and so forth, uh, having good education, all the things that go to make you a healthy person. That's upstream spending. And then a second bucket of, of downstream spending, and that's the, the health system we're familiar with. You break your hip or you have a heart problem and you go to the doctor and they fix you. On the downstream side, we are the worst in the world in terms of spending and in terms of the value of, of what we spend, we're making a choice, you know, witting or not, to kind of 
crank up the downstream spending at the expense of the upstream spending. And our spending pattern looks very much unlike other developed countries. And, you know, it's as simple as this. If you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're an administrator in the health system, you cannot ring the cash register until someone shows up with a problem. Mm -hmm. And you can fix them and you can charge them for fixing them. And so the question is, how do you give someone a financial incentive to keep people healthier? So this is not an unanswerable question. I mean, there are a lot of experiments underway right now to try to bring these incentives in line, to try to give people an incentive to do the upstream work. And one example that was actually part of Obamacare that nobody ever talks about are so-called accountable care organizations or ACOs. Hmm. And I should say right now, I mean, this is a true wormhole of complexity, and I am at about an eighth grade level of familiarity. (laughs) But let me just sketch out the basics here. The basics are, what if you could give primary care physicians – an incentive to keep their patients out of the hospital. So by doing things like more carefully monitoring their chronic diseases, Hmm. because keep in mind, you know, primary care physicians like everybody else, they're paid when somebody shows up with the flu or something is wrong. They're not paid to keep you healthy, to keep you out of the health system. But what if they could be? And so this structure was created to basically say, we're going to monitor your population of patients. And we know from years and years and years of insurance records, roughly what percentage of those patients would have gone to the hospital. And if you can reduce that number by keeping people healthier, by keeping them in control of their disease, then you're going to save the government, Medicare and Medicaid, a lot of money, and we're going to share that with you. That's the basic idea, that if you keep tighter control over your patients, keep Mm -hmm. them out of the hospital, you're going to make the government money and the government will share some of that with you. And these structures are starting to succeed. And I think that kind of thing is so promising. And I just look forward to 10 or 20 years from now when we get the financial plumbing right. I mean, what a powerful thing it will be to have a health system that is investing in your health and not just fixing you up when you're broken. Well, let's talk about the tragic fate of George Floyd, who was killed by police in Minneapolis in May. The point that so many protesters were making was that the killing was just one more incident in a long, even centuries-long history of violence by white Americans in positions of power against black Americans. And this felt like one of these kind of straw that breaks the camel's back moments. And I'm reminded of this extraordinary quote that's kind of a mantra in the book, Every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And protesters are talking about getting to the root causes of racism, but it's hard to untangle those roots, right? It's such a complex problem. How do you think about upstream thinking as it relates to this tragic case? It's horrifying. I mean, I think you're right to bring up that quote, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. We have a system of policing that routinely murders black men. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a consistent outcome of the system. And so you've got to stop this urge to write it off as some bad apples. Yes, they're bad apples, but that's not the issue. The issue is that in some police departments, the systems are basically like bad apple support groups. There are countless examples of organizations that develop cultures and systems to counteract the work of bad apples. And the question is, why are police departments, not all of them, but many of them, why are they designed in a way that lacks those antidotes? 
because we can't trust public safety to the worst behavior of the worst officers, which is in fact what's happening now. Where are the layers of protection? Where's the culture to combat that? Where's the leadership to combat that? Mm -hmm. This officer in question that killed George Floyd had 17 complaints filed against him. That is a systems failure. Absolutely. And it reminds me of one of the stories that I chased for this book was about a guy named uh, Anthony Eiten, who uh, is a a doctor and a public health expert and actually a lawyer as well. He kind of hit the trifecta. And he's working these days for what's called the BHC, Building Healthy Communities in California. As one of the top health officers in Alameda County in California, he had figured out that there were enormous life expectancy gaps between people who lived just miles away from each other. I mean, I'm talking 15, 20-year life expectancy differences that he found in his own county. And then when that work was replicated in other places, people saw the same results. In Cleveland, a four-mile walk from one neighborhood to another, which might take you 80 minutes to walk, over the span of that walk, 23 years of life expectancy vanishes. And so Eiton eventually concludes that in these communities, fundamentally what causes people to get sick and feel sick is a lack of control over what's happening to them. Hmm. They're literally under siege. Hmm. They're struggling to find housing. They're struggling to find good education, to avoid Hmm. crime, to find jobs, to find healthy food, in some cases even potable drinking water. So low-income people in this country are basically juggling a whole bunch of balls simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're up against. I mean, that's the background of the George Floyd situation is is the kind of things that I utterly take for granted in my life. Mm. You know, the ability to find decent housing and access to parks, good education, you know, relatively safe from crime, uh, an opportunity to jobs. It's not that one of those things is lacking and we just need a program to fill the gap. It's that all those things are lacking at once. And that's systems work. And look, I know when we talk about things that are that complex and that depressing, I know our shoulders can kind of sag a little bit. It's like, well, how in the hell would you even start to work on things like that? But that's where we've got to put on our upstream hat and not accept complacency, not accept learned helplessness, but say, let's look at this problem in the face. Let's see the system and let's do something about it. But our shoulders do sag. And we often do feel helpless. So how do we stay hopeful about the future? Is there anything we can learn from the upstream thinking we already do in our everyday lives that can help us change the larger world? We've been talking about how to use upstream thinking to tackle big systemic issues like healthcare and policing. And Dan Heath says we'd all do well to do a little more of it in our own lives, whether at home or at work or as inhabitants of planet Earth. Dan, you say that there are two areas we are most practiced in implementing upstream thinking, which is parenting and our teeth. What do you mean by that? Parenting and teeth strike me as quite different. (laughs) Yeah, so... When it comes to parenting, I think we are natural upstream thinkers. I mean, everything is about, you know, what is this going to do to my child in the long term? Is this too much screen time? Is, you know, if if they're not learning a third language, are they going to be hampered in their Ivy League applications and all this, you know, dumb stuff that parents do to themselves? 
We're always thinking long-term. It's a beautiful thing. When it comes to our health, the only area I could identify where, where we're genuinely and seemingly instinctively upstream was our teeth. Even as it's like an act of Congress to get people to put on sunscreen or to get people to take a 30-minute walk every day or, you know, we have to hammer people over the head to get them to get vaccines. Even in that kind of grudging environment, people twice a day take a break to undergo a, a preventive regimen of tooth scrubbing. And some people add mouthwash and floss. And every year or so, we check in with the dentist to make sure things are all okay. And if you think about it, our teeth are the only organ of our body that we devote that level of care to. And isn't that kind of a preposterous outcome uh, for our species? But the point by extension is, wouldn't we live in a much better world if the kind of instinct we have for our kids and our teeth extended to the planet, for instance? Yes. And can we learn to regain some of those forward-looking instincts in ways that, that serve our communities and our world? Has the research you've done for this book changed the way you think about the cumulative impact of kind of small factors in your personal life? I think the main thing it's done is it's it's made me more attentive to recurring irritants. Mm-hmm. And it, let me give you just like a trivial example. So before the quarantine, my MO was to go to a coffee shop every morning, and that's where I do my best work, my best writing. And so I'm constantly lugging my laptop around and I'll pull it out at the coffee shop and plug it in and and then pack it back up and pack up the power cord and then go back to my office and unpack the laptop and the power cord and plug the power cord in at the edge of the desk and crawl under the table to plug it into the power strip. And that was just part of life. And it was annoying. Every single day it was annoying, but it just never occurred to me that that was a fixable annoyance. I don't know why. And then one day in the course of writing a book about upstream thinking, I'm embarrassed to say, it occurred to me hey, why not just buy a second power cord? And what amazes me about that is is not the genius of the solution, because that's pretty dumb if you think about it, for years to just endure this annoyance. But what struck me about it is just how easy it was to forget that I had any agency, to just assume this is an irritant that's going to be with me my whole life. And so I've just grown addicted to little things like that. Like how many problems in our lives and in our work are we enduring just because we've forgotten that we can fix them. Well, Dan, you've said that this is an optimistic book, and I think it is. And one of the things that strikes me is that many of the upstream solutions that you describe in the book became visible through access to data, right? When the Chicago public school system saw that they could predict graduation rates of ninth graders, they saw a path to address this set of systemic problems. And it strikes me that we are living in a world where access to data is in the process of exploding. But we may be at a threshold where we're about to have a pretty dramatic increase in upstream solutions. Do you think that's true? I do, because the only way we can prove to ourselves that we're accomplishing something is often through data. Uh, For instance, I talked about the parable of the drowning kids, but there's, of course, a real-life equivalent to that, which is lots of public pools. The YMCA has the most public pools in the country. And so the drowning of kids is a real problem. They have a handful of kids that die every year, and they're putting into place systems to prevent that. But because of the ambiguity of upstream work, they're they're never going to know which kids were saved, right? Think about that. They they will Mm. never know. Which kids would have drowned in the absence of their work? All that they'll see is just some numbers decline on a page, which is great. 
It means lives were saved. We just don't know who. And so data systems are a critical part of this. And I think data systems can also be critical for noticing linkages in complex systems. One story that I came across that I loved was about uh, the controller of New York City, Scott Stringer. And part of his work is to deal with lawsuits filed against the city and and settlements that result. And, And so one vivid example was there was this Google engineer that had been walking through Central Park and this fluke accident happened. A falling oak tree branch just came down and hit him in the head and ended up causing brain injuries and paralysis. Oh, boy. And and it just seemed like just a a once in a blue moon kind of freak thing until Scott Stringer figured out there were actually a bunch of settlements originating from falling branches. And he was thinking, well, is this just part of life? Has, Has this always happened? And then he noticed, no, they were increasing. Come to find out, right around the time the number of settlements for falling branches increased, the parks and rec budget had been cut, partly by reducing the amount of money they spent on pruning. And that was intended to be a cost-conscious move. And so all of a sudden, with this data that he's created by studying settlements and where they came from, they begin to realize, hey, we can be saving $10 in one pocket only to pay out $11 from another pocket, right? You cut the pruning budget, but then you pay out more money than that to settlements to people who are hurt, not to mention the cost of the people who are hurt by the policy. Sometimes this reached extreme measures. Like there was one swing on a Brooklyn playground that had yielded multiple lawsuits. It had been hung too low. And so kids were actually breaking their legs on the swing. And all somebody needed to do was go out and raise the swing six inches and the problem would have gone away. Wow! And so that's the kind of story that happens when you have wise use of data and when you have the right set of data inputs, you can start to detect these linkages that were just too subtle mm-hmm. for us to figure out you know, through our senses living inside an organization. And I think that's really, really promising. And supposedly, we're soon going to be living in a world with sensors in everything, including every swing set, perhaps, so that all that data will be available. I think maybe a good place to end, Dan, might be to talk about species-level upstream thinking, right? Climate change, obviously a huge, huge concern for so many of us. Asteroid impact, I think you mentioned. Alien invasions, perhaps, or (laughs) closer to home, COVID-19 with 10x the lethality rate, which is something we can conceive of. When we think about these species-level challenges, we're dealing with enormous complexity, distributed stakeholders. Any thoughts on how we can be more effective at assessing these kinds of risks and going upstream as a species? Well, I actually have a story of hope on this front, which I think will be welcome news for climate change activists. That It's been a rough period for work on that front. But there is a story, an example in recent human history where humankind came together to combat a problem that had never happened. It was a speculative problem. And despite that, we came together and did something about it. And this is something I'd never heard about until I researched this book. And it's called Planetary Protection. And in fact, it may be interesting for listeners to know that there is somebody whose actual title on their business card is Planetary Protection Officer. It's a role at NASA. And this work dates back to the 50s and 60s. And the issue was we were just starting to plot the moon landing. And a lot of people were concerned about what would happen when people went to the moon and came back. And so they were concerned about two things. One was called forward contamination, 
which is to say that in the course of us visiting other places, potentially other planets as well as the moon, do we bring Earth organisms with us in a way that disrupts those other ecosystems? Like, might we bring some kind of Earth bug that kind of messes up things on Mars or, you know, less so on the moon? And then backward contamination was the other fear, which was what are the astronauts going to bring back that could potentially be catastrophic for our own ecosystem? And, you know, most scientists didn't think there was much chance of there being moon bugs. I mean, it's just not a very conducive environment to life. But but they were also Mm -hmm. wise and humble enough to say, we don't think there's life there, but by God, we've never been to the moon. We just don't know what's there. So why don't we take some precautions here? Just to make sure, it would sure be a bad intellectual surprise to find out, no, in fact, there was life and, you know, the astronauts brought it back and we'd all die two weeks later. So, in the course of those fears, they start devising these just incredible quarantine procedures where, I mean, they would take parts of the rocket ships and bake them to try to reduce the number of microorganisms that were present. And they put in ventilation systems, I mean, hardcore stuff to try to filter out anything that was brought back. And when the astronauts came back, they were supposed to be taken immediately into this very restrictive quarantine until they could be studied and approved. And all of that stuff was not costless. NASA engineers hated a lot of it because it was like you had to make trade-offs To make something really biologically safe often meant they had to make engineering adjustments. It often costed more. It often took more time or it it took away from performance in some way. And yet scientists and and international leaders fought the good fight and put all this work into place, this planetary protection work. And I was just struck by that because as one of the planetary protection officers told me, a woman named Catherine Conley, she said, so far as I can tell, planetary protection is the first time in human history, that humans as a global species decided to prevent damage before we were capable of doing something. And isn't that a beautiful thing? And maybe we should all wish together that there is a second time that we do the same thing. Fantastic. Well, I'm delighted to learn that there are planetary protection officers at the ready. Lord knows we need them. Is that not the coolest title in the world? (laughs) What is better than that? It's a great title. It's a great title. Well, Dan Heath, thank you so much for your time today. It's really wonderful speaking with you and, uh, and learning about how we can apply upstream thinking to our lives and to our planet. Thanks a million, Rufus. It's been really fun talking to you. From Wondery, this is The Next Big Idea. If you have thoughts about Upstream or any of the other books in our series, we'd love you to join the conversation with me, Dan Heath, and the other authors who appear on this show at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcasts. Join now and get three months of membership absolutely free. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcasts. Special thanks today to Dan Heath. His new book, Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen, is available everywhere books are sold. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode was written by Hannah Kingsley-Mall. Caleb Bissinger is our associate producer. Our series producer is Michael Kavnach. Senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Sound design by Jake Gorski. And executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. 